Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, it's quite a surprise for me to be asked to come here and introduce uh, Professor Mara tonight. He's a very good friend of mine. I've been over to America quite a number of times and spoken at uh, meetings which uh, he has organized. I have to say, I didn't know it was going to be in a school. So I wouldn't have come, probably, even though he's a good friend of mine, because I'm a teacher. I've just spent the whole day with 35 horrible little children of 11. And when I get out of school in the evening, I like to forget children and forget schools. But I've never been to Dartford before. The only thing I know about Dartford, there might be someone here who can confirm it, is I come from Yeovil. And uh, when I was at school, until I left to come up to London, there'd been no work in Yeovil. I always used to support Yeovil Town, the football team. And I think Dartford, did Dartford used to be in the Southern League? Is it still in the Southern League? I was, no, I was going to say Yeovil always used to beat Dartford. Uh, you might remember the most famous thing about Yeovil is we got to the fifth round of the FA Cup when we were beaten by Manchester United because they fouled our goalkeeper in the first three minutes and he had eight stitches in his head. His name was Leather, but that's, that's completely irrelevant to the topic tonight. But, so I was very interested to come to Dartford and... Uh, I should never forget coming here because we were driving around for about half an hour in a very peculiar one-way system. Uh, before telling you about Dr. Mara, I suppose to say a few words. So I, I thought I'd say a few words to you about uh, a painless way of killing goldfish, if any of you wanted to kill your goldfish. And the way to kill goldfish completely painlessly is if you heat the water in their tank up, very, very slowly, degree by degree, you will see the goldfish swimming around without the slightest sign of discomfort. And you carry on heating it up. And in the end, they'll be dead. And by the, but they won't even know they're dying. They won't have suffered. They won't be unhappy. And they'll just be quietly dead. And that, to a certain extent, is what's been happening to a lot of Catholics in the English-speaking world. Uh, uh, I'd be very surprised if any of you here tonight would come into that category because the ones who would wouldn't bother to come to a talk like this. But uh, I was put very much in mind of uh, this goldfish an analogy, which, by the way, is perfectly true. About two months ago, and I happened to go into a Catholic church one evening to buy a newspaper, and there was a hymn practice taking place. As I was going in, uh, an elderly lady came out and she said it's impossible to pray in there and when I went in and heard the hymns I could tell why it was as if one had gone into a rather low class discotheque it was the most horrible cacophony but uh, leave that aside in the end they finished and the teacher she seemed a very nice young girl she said well that's very good you can go now and the children just turned around and rushed straight out of the church as if they were running out to play like the children in my class do and they feel liberated not one of them turned around and gave so much as a nod to the tabernacle. Actually, the tabernacle had been stuck out of the way on one side of the church. But what I thought about those children, probably, I wonder, do they really believe that in the tabernacle our Lord is really present, that God the Son is actually there in that tabernacle? If they believed it, they couldn't possibly have just charged out of the church like that. Without, without, and they, literally, they literally ran out. And then, you see, if you look at what's happened re with regarding the real presence in many, many parishes in this country, if you remember before the Second Vatican Council, 
We really believe that the Blessed Sacrament is our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul and divinity. Now that belief hasn't been changed by Vatican II. That is the teaching of the Church today. That's what the Pope teaches. That's what we all believe. But before the Second Vatican Council, that belief was manifested in many ways. For example, at Mass, only the consecrated hands of a priest could touch the host. Now lay people distribute Holy Communion. Only a priest could touch the sacred vessels in which the Blessed Sacrament was contained. Because we believe that the Blessed Sacrament really was God the Son, we always knelt down to receive it. Because we were afraid that even the smallest particle might fall, a communion plate was held underneath our chin. The priest made the most meticulous ablutions after distributing Holy Communion. There were many, many signs to show that reflect what the church taught in the way we behaved. And if anyone had said to you or to any of the priests, let's abolish every single sign of respect for the Blessed Sacrament, people would have said, you're absolutely crazy. That just can't be done. But that is exactly what has happened. If you think not one of the signs of respect for the Blessed Sacrament, which were mandatory before the Second Vatican Council, is now mandatory. I'm sure in this parish your priest probably observes all of them. But in lots of parishes they don't observe one. And the people stroll up for communion and receive the host as if they're going into McDonald's and getting a hamburger. They, you see children going back smiling, grinning, uh, with their hands, hands but I've seen this myself many times. Uh, but if you're in a parish where you have a good priest, people don't realise that this is going on because it hasn't happened in that parish. What is very sad, I've, had, I've experienced it in my own parish. We, the parish priest we used to have until a few years ago, he had us always to kneel for communion, receive it on the tongue, there are no lay ministers. He died, a new one came, and all that, that they've got ladies giving out, the very small congregations. The rule, by the way, if you have lay ministers, it's supposed to be because the priest is very elderly, he's ill, he's infirm, he can't manage it. Or there's such huge congregations, it would take such a long time to distribute communion that the Mass would be unduly prolonged. Well, in my parish, uh, you don't usually get more than at the very most, 60 or 70 people going to communion at any Mass. It's quite a small parish, but he's got two people helping him give out to communion. That's not necessary. Everything our good priest did has been overthrown. Uh, another example of, of, of this, sort of, say, we say, gold, goldfish analogy, it, it, it's in our ordinary life today. You take something like, uh, say, pornography. You go into W.H. Smith's, you probably go to W.H. Smith's in Dartford, you'll have a whole row of pornographic magazines. Uh, if that had been done 20 years ago, people would have gone in to complain, they would have complained to the police, they would have written to W.H. Smith and protested. Now we just take it for granted. We just accept it as part of life. It's the same with the television. They show things on the television now, even 10 years ago if they'd shown them, it would have resulted in... Uh, criminal prosecution, but people have become accustomed to it. And that, that is the great difficulty today, that the, the state of society is such that you can gradually become brainwashed or conditioned into accepting things which are really totally unacceptable. Last year, I believe it was, uh, our bishops, they've got uh, commission, I think it's something about racial justice. 
and they recommended that Catholic premises should be made available for Rastafarians. I don't know if anybody here knows anything about Rastafarians. You might not even have heard of them. Uh, I lived in Lewisham for nearly 20 years, and there are quite a number of them there. They're a cult uh, uh, from the West Indies. They believe that the, uh, the Haile Selassie, who was the emperor of Ethiopia, is a kind of messiah, and they worship him. They think he's still alive. And uh, they also worship the late Duke of Gloucester, because they say he looked like Nebuchadnezzar. And instead of Holy Communion at their services, they smoke marijuana. And all the other West Indians absolutely detest them. If a West Indian, if a Jamaican family, one of their children becomes a Rastafarian, it's like if a child from a Catholic family becomes a Mooney. And they, it's the most horrifying thing that can happen to them. And our bishops put out this report saying we should make our premises available for them. You can hardly imagine a more false religion so that they can worship in their own way because they said they're a valid religious experience. Well, when we've reached the stage where Catholic bishops recommend something like that, something really is very, very wrong. And uh, tonight, you're going to be very privileged to hear Professor Mara is going to tell you what is happening in the Catholic Church. Now, Professor Mara, he's a very rare, he's the only one of this breed that I know. Professor Mara is a real intellectual. He's the only intellectual that I have uh, ever met, uh, because you, you don't really meet very many. Uh, one could meet very clever people, very well-educated people, but people who really think and uh, have original thoughts are, are very, very rare indeed. And he, he would say himself, most of his ideas, he's a disciple of someone who's not as well-known as he should be in England, Professor Dietrich von Hildebrand, who's probably the greatest lay Catholic philosopher and theologian who's lived in this century. He, he was honoured by uh, Pope Paul VI for his defence of Humanae Vitae. And he was what's called a phenomenologist. He belonged to a school of philosophy called phenomenology, which has become very respectable now because the present Pope is a phenomenologist, and uh, the present Pope thinks very highly of Professor von Hildebrand, uh, and, he would and the Pope would obviously agree with Professor Mara's ideas. Uh, he, he is he's an associate uh, professor of philosophy at Fordham University, and he took his graduate MA and PhD degrees under Dietrich von Hildebrand. He gives many, many lectures in the USA. He seems to be always on the radio and television o over there. And he is the co-host, as they call it. I hope you won't mind me saying it's a terrible word, a host. But we, we have hosts over here now, don't we, uh, on our television, with a very good Jesuit, Father Michelli, on, on a regular program, which is syndicated in seven major cities. It's called Where Catholics Meet. And uh, he founded... Uh, school called the Holy Innocent School because unfortunately in the USA in most Catholic schools uh, this might seem like a wild exaggeration but it isn't in most parochial Catholic schools in America the type of teaching that is given actually endangers the Catholic faith of the children it has no relationship whatsoever to the Catholic faith that you would have been taught while you are in school the same thing, I'm sad to say, is happening in many Catholic schools in this country. If you read a paper like The Universe, you'll see every few months letters come in, people saying, well, why is my child, my child has been in a Catholic school for ten years, he doesn't know the Ten Commandments, he doesn't know the Seven Sacraments, he doesn't know what the Pope is. 
Mine, in a way, uh, one wonders why the parent hasn't taught the child herself or himself. But uh, that, that very sadly, the state of affairs in American Catholic schools is, is now coming to be reflected in our Catholic schools over here. Again, I'm sure it's not the case in this school. It's very pleased to see the beautiful uh, visual aids and things outside relating to the Rosary and Our Lady. Whenever you see the Rosary and Our Lady featured, you know that things are sound. But it is a very, very sad and very strange phenomenon when you think that schools in this country built at great sacrifices by very poor people, often the children of poor immigrants from Ireland, have now started to endanger the faith of the children taught in them. I have one of, one of my children, he's in a Catholic comprehensive school, which, which I won't name, and uh, he very, he, this term he's been learning about Jewish dietary laws, the Koran, uh, and the Hindu religion, and the few things he's ever learned about the Catholic religions, most of them have been heretical. And yet, we've had all the Catholic clergy in that area urging us to find money, support the school, set it up, and yet it's endangering the faith. How could this happen? It seems impossible. But I think if you listen now to Dr. Mara, you're going to find out, because what happens in America this year happens in this country a year later. And about four years ago, you probably didn't know there was such a thing as McDonald's. <laughs> and we have them every year. We didn't have hippies or yippies uh, uh, and all that sort of thing. Uh, Dr. Mara will probably say, well, we sent them the Beatles. <laughs> uh, but at least I heard, I'll tell him something, the very last thing I'm going to say before he starts. I was listening to a broadcast on uh, Radio 4, I think it was, uh, two weeks ago, and they had a conductor from Boston who has set all the Beatles tunes, he's made a record of it, I think with the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, to the Baroque music style, and they all sound very, very beautiful. So I think at least, at least the Beatles were probably a, a better exchange than the dreadful ideas for religious education we're getting from America now. But uh, I won't say any more now, and I'll let uh, Professor Mara tell you what is happening in the church, and why, and what to do about it. <coughs> Thank you, Michael. Dear fathers in Christ and dear friends in Christ, I'm very pleased to be on this lecture tour, Profiti and Pontifice, uh, two little groups, I think they're London-based, are sponsoring this tour. This is my second time around. I believe it's the first time I've been in Dartford. I'm pretty sure because I would have remembered the one-way streets that Michael was referring to. <coughs> I want to begin with the fact of chaos in the Roman Catholic Church. It's an absolute fact, and it is uh, divided as follows. There's chaos in doctrine about faith and morals, in practices, all sorts of scandalous things like annulments, and, uh, which are really divorces in many cases, and remarriage sometimes two and three times, uh, all kinds of things like nuns for abortion, I don't know if this applies to England, but sometimes I think you people are ahead of us, except that you're too polite to publicize it. We, we have freedom of the press, and every kind of stupidity instantly gets in the media. But you probably have heard uh, we have several cases now where nuns are not fulfilled when they're merely teaching or working in hospitals, that some of them work in the Congress, in the legislature, and some of them are government officials uh, funding abortion. 
And uh, one of them was forced to resign as a nun because she would not resign as a government official. Well, that's pretty bad. A nun is supposed to be a spouse of Christ. And it's bad enough they don't speak out against abortion, but that she should be a secular civil servant. Funding abortion is unbelievable and certainly would have been vehemently denounced even a few years ago. We have all sorts of chaos in worship that every sort of blasphemy <coughs> has existed and continues to exist with scarcely a rebuke from authority. Now this happens on all levels. It happens in the local places, in many schools, many CCD programs. CCD for us means Confraternity of Catholic Doctrine. It is a religion program for those who do not attend Catholic schools, so once a week they attend a program. And they're high school students and grade school students, elementary school students, and they get almost pure heresy, infamous uh, heresy, blasphemous stuff on that level. It goes to a higher level. That Some people think, well, it's only in my little locale that the reason why things are not so good is that we have this strange uh, lay teacher or this nun or this priest, but probably things are much better over there. But that's why it's useful for you to hear someone like me and someone like Michael, we did not conspire together, and to read certain journals about England or America, you're going to find out it's not just your locality, it's not just this little press, it's not just that one teacher, that the very problems which exist in one place exist in all places, in the diocese. You'll find that it exists in a national level. You'll find out that national hierarchies are espousing much of the same stuff. And you'll find out it's not merely the United Kingdom national hierarchies. It's America, Canada, Holland, uh, Germany, Italy. Everyone would expect it would be in France, of course. But one says, well, at least in Italy, things are good. That's where the Holy Father is. And things are not in Italy. In fact, they are deteriorating at a more alarming rate than in England. Michael does not believe us, but I think things in England are better than almost anywhere else in the world, except, say, in Africa. The best places to be a Roman Catholic would be places where, where European influences have not yet penetrated. I know the jet aircraft can fly there, but maybe the airfield is bombed out, and maybe the wireless doesn't work, and they can't have so many workshops. So you still can get a real Catholic education in certain places. You still have serious Catholic unities. But things get worse and worse. Now this problem of, of the chaos in the church, if, if I did not have faith, I would say this is the end of the Catholic church, period. One, one reads about the decline of the Roman Empire. One sees the signs of decadence. And then you can always tell when an institution loses its will to live. It does not replace its, it does not replace, say, the clergy with younger men. The, the nuns quit. There are no younger nuns. Those nuns who remain very often are writing against Christ. Uh, and their whole lifestyle is such as to discourage a young person from joining. So if I were a mere secular historian or sociologist and I looked around I would say this institution with its glorious past, 2,000 years, has an ultimate death wish which will be realized 20 years from now. 
It's winding down into squalor and infamy. It's selling off its property. It's betraying its past. And this is the simple truth of the matter. However, my faith tells me there's always supernatural hope, and it gives me this certainty. But from, a, from an external point of view, things are deplorable. And nevertheless, not many people know how bad it is, as Michael said. Most people are still these goldfish, most Catholics. They're swimming around, they're getting a bit more sluggish, the atmosphere becomes more hostile to their life processes, but nevertheless, they do not really know what's going on until finally they'll die, their faith will die, their children's faith will die, and it will float belly up and become stagnant and putrid. And the question is, why is this so? Why is it that such a gross decaying of a huge institution is mostly unnoticed? And the point is, not enough people see past the local scene. And I insist on that. You have malaise. You're not happy with what children bring home. You're not happy with an occasional thing you see on the television, an occasional lecture you hear. You're not happy with the Duke of, uh, of Norfolk, what he's saying, and how little he's rebuked by people. But you figure, well, it's just one of those things that you, one can't be perfect and Certainly in 99% of the cases, things are good. So one way of opening your eyes is to see that nothing is localized, that it's universalized, the chaos. And you can see that quite simply by reading a few journals. I'm going to mention a few things later on. If you but had a subscription to this one American journal, The Wanderer, for one year, it's absolutely accurate what it reports on. If you read Father Crane's Christian Order for one year, telling you what's coming out of the seminaries, the, the, the uh, institutes for catechetics, you would say, my goodness, it is universal. It is at these high levels. Now, that's one way of being awakened to the crisis. Another way is to identify it not as simply geographically universal, but to identify the ideology the mentality, the false philosophy that underlies all the chaos, or 99% of the chaos, and the word is modernism. Now, I was told, I'm going to speak up north in a few days, and I was told that the people up north in this area are so little aware of what's happening that if I say, you know, there's modernism in the church, they'll applaud it. They'll say, isn't that wonderful? The church, the church is finally keeping up. We have jet aircraft, we have air conditioning, and we have modernism. They're that naive. So, merely, may I merely note this. The word modernism sounds like a good word, but it is a word coined by popes 130 years ago. It was actually coined by the heretics, but the popes have enshrined the word. Michael here has written a brilliant pamphlet called Partis. It's a small book. Partisans of Error, which uh, outlines the theory of modernism. And this theory of modernism started with French intellectuals. It came to the English-speaking world through this Father Tyrell, a, a, an Irish Jesuit. It was then viciously suppressed, thank God, by St. Pius X, the Pope. He wrote an encyclical against modernism. He listed many, many errors which the modernists espouse, 
And for a few blessed decades, modernism was driven underground. It was not destroyed, unfortunately, but the modernists knew authority was so efficient that if they dared publicly teach their heresies, they would be removed from their post. In the moment, authority lost its nerve. And that coincided with Vatican II for accidental reasons. The modernists were seen to multiply like maggots, and they occupied most of the important positions in the church. Now you might say, what is this modernism? Well, it's even strange to think that 130 years ago you had theologians who said we have to be modern. In those days they didn't have jet aircraft. But modernism is this mentality which says Christ, the Apostles, the Apostles' Creed, ethical codes, they, they no doubt had some relevance and validity centuries ago. But since then, there's been tremendous progress in physics, chemistry, biology, science, in social science, in, in, in psychological science and, and uh, sociology, and, and, and in biblical criticism and in everything else. Therefore, modernism says we have to adapt Catholic doctrine to conform to modern thought. And it does not embarrass them that modern thought changes every 30 years. I mean, if you read the so-called modern science of 130 years ago, it's rather primitive. And every 30 years, science has revolutionary changes in physics and chemistry, and not to speak of the so-called science of psychology and, and, and sociology. I think, it's a, I think the real scientists should sue these people for daring to use the word science when it comes to psychology. But nevertheless, let Freud come, let Darwin come, let, let sociology or Goscombe come, and we have to change everything so that our codes conform and our belief conforms to modern man. And today they have this audacity. This was begun by a German, but it, it's all over the place. In this age of electric lights, how can we expect people to believe in the virgin birth, in the resurrection of Christ? They acted as if, well, in the dark ages when you had kerosene lanterns or, or pitch cones that you would burn pine cones for light. Well, then in those primitive times, people might believe that a woman could have a baby without a male. But today we have electric lights. We use electric shavers. We, we, we're quite, we, we've studied biology. You don't expect us to believe in virgin birth. And you don't expect us to believe in original sin, this myth of original sin. Sociology and psychology explain the aggressive instincts of people, and Marxism explains how alienation causes people to be antisocial, and so on and so on. So this is what modernism does. It will take every doctrine of your creed, the Apostles' Creed, which one says before the Rosary, the Nicene Creed, which is said on Sundays in church, and every single doctrine, they may allow the language to stand. They're not, in fact, that's part of their diabolical methodology, that you can still believe in God the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ the Son of God. That's acceptable. But you have to understand it so that it does not shock people who believe in electric lights or who shave with an electric razor. You have to get rid of Miracles, the supernatural, 
absolute law, you have to have the entire faith conform to so-called modern expectations. And this is the doctrine of modernism. Now, it all begins, I believe, with the Bible, that most people do not understand the tremendous damages done to our faith and our church and our religious practices by this rationalistic, modernistic misinterpretation of the Bible. It started in the, with the Germans, has totally destroyed Protestantism. The only serious Protestant groups are those who have nothing to do with biblical criticism, and they form together in, in enthusiastic little communities called evangelical communities, and they have beautiful faith. But they are vulnerable to the next intellectual assault. But the mainline Protestant churches have been decimated by biblical criticism. 